Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 214. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 214 you're listening to. My guest today is Bay Area recording veteran Bart Thurber, best known for his studio incarnations called House of Faith. Bart has recorded about, I'm going to say, a thousand bands in the last 30 years. And I recently paid him a visit to his current studio, which is in Oakland, California where he shares a space with former WCA guest number 32, Miles Boyson. Miles calls the space Gorilla Recording, and of course, Bart calls it House of Faith. So I dropped in and uh, we had a great chat. So Bart Thurber coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's drink some coffee. Mmm, that's good. Studio co-ops. Yeah, as I mentioned, Bart and Miles have this this co-op where Bart calls it one thing, Miles calls it another. I once had that in Emeryville, California. I had uh, a studio that I shared with two other engineers, uh, Josh Roberts and Lisa Richmond. Great engineers, great people, but we never could agree on a name. We all wanted to stick to our own names. Let's see, Lisa called it Dance Home Sound, Josh called it Roof Brothers Recording, and I called it Broken Radio. Yeah three different names and so people would show up and you know that that can lead to some confusion uh only if you don't share only if you share clients actually which you know that can happen but you know no big deal it's not you know people understand so yeah it's it's doable definitely with multiple people so yeah studio co-ops uh rainy day here in northern california man it was absolutely intense yeah, we just got hammered. It's just been nonstop. And I actually had a, a near miss the other day. I was uh, taking a, a right turn off of my main road. I was going into the right turn and I see this thing coming at me and it didn't really occur to me at first what it was until all the brain cells kind of, all the synapses, I guess, would started firing and I realized that's a tree and it's about to hit me and the car. So I swerved to miss it, no problem totally missed it but uh yeah tree came crashing through a neighbor's fence uh onto this main road but it was insane so that the amount of moisture in the ground is just uh really uprooting trees so you gotta watch out for those trees nam 24th through the 27th if you're listening to this show this show comes out the week of nam so if you're heading down there and you see me come introduce yourself say hello i'd love to meet you it'd be great to uh uh, meet some of the people who listen to the show. Nam, I'm going to be uh, heading down there with uh, my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. We're going to be uh, sharing an Airbnb with our friend Chris Salim. Uh, both of them are former WCA guests. Chris, of course, has Mixed Down Online, uh, which creates some great content. I've posted before that uh, Chris does a, a fantastic Cubase course, which I'll put a link in the show notes for that course. So be sure and check that out. You know how you normally Google for something 
and when you're like, if, if there's a DAW feature you're looking for and you're like, oh my God, how do I do whatever it is? First thing I do, and I'm sure many of you do this too, is go to Google and go, how do I? And then of course, some video will pop up. Chris's Cubase course eliminates all that because it's all in there. All you have to do is look through the table of contents on the left-hand side of the screen and then click on what it is you wanna do. And it's really well laid out. Super impressed with how uh, he's put this course together. So yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes for uh, Chris Salim's Cubase course. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's go over to Oakland, California to chat with Bart Thurber here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Welcome to the podcast, Bart. Thank you. As I was coming in to the studio, I was telling you that the first time I saw your name was associated with the recording of a Bay Area band called Stone Fox. And being utterly blown away by that. That was like, as I think we discussed, it was early 90s. Mm -hmm. right? That's when I would have done it. And I've always known your name. I've never seen who you are or met you in person until now. And we have many mutual friends, as it turns out. Miles Boyson, who's a former working class audio guest, being one of them. As a matter of fact, we did that interview in this room. So it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm a fan of your work. Thank you. Let's just start with where did audio begin for you on a professional level? What was the breaking point that caused you to go, aha, I'm going to do this? Ah, well, for me, recording has always been started as a hobby that got out of control. I've always played in a lot of bands, basically a guitar player, and I was always the guy that had the four track TAC reel to reel tape recorder and I'd haul it around record our practices, record all my friends' bands. Anybody who would stand still, I would record them. I always had an obsession with trying to get things to sound the way I was hearing them, and I'm still obsessed, and I still cannot get it to sound exactly how I hear it. So it's always an ongoing quest. After a while, right about the end of the 80s, being in bands was not that fun anymore. You play, so you know what it's like. It's hard to be in a band. And I had lots of respect for bands, for staying bands too. The recording thing was getting more and more popular. And so a buddy of mine, Eugene Robinson, who plays in Oxbow, we were in a band back in the 80s called Whipping Boy. And he wanted to start a little uh, record store and I wanted to start a studio. So we found a building in Palo Alto and uh, it was tucked away in this little corner in this little forgotten warehouse. So he opened the first House of Faith, that's my studio, and he opened CFY Records, that was his record label and record store. And uh, we ran that together for about a year or so, and then he pulled out and I took over the whole space. That was my first uh, out-of-control studio experience. I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week. I would have bands come in 12 to 6, and then the second band would come in at 6 to 12, so I was just pumping them through. Because I had no way, I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, and so I just needed bands to do it with. And I was extremely fortunate, extremely lucky with my timing because back then, um, and I'm kind of getting away from the question, which was how no, did no. it all start? But it's good. yeah, back then, uh, there were not a lot of alternatives, alternatives for bands to record uh, places. All the studios were super expensive. There weren't a lot of small studios like there are now. The big studios didn't want to record the punk rock, the little punk rock bands. They would make fun of the little punk rock bands. I just happened to scooch in there and I didn't charge a lot. And I like punk rock bands. I like the people that play in those kind of bands, metal bands, all those guys. So I started uh, focusing on that. It got popular really quickly. I was really lucky. And uh, that's pretty much how it started. It was a hobby that got out of control, turned into a business. I worked crazy hours when I started for the first... Uh, Let's see, that studio was there from 90 to 90, mid 94. So for four and a half years, the joke was a thousand bands <laughs> and I was going to do a thousand bands and I got pretty close. I think I got up to uh, definitely over a thousand projects, um, but probably as far as individual bands go, I think I was at six or 700 bands by the time I stopped. That's why I started. What training did you have prior to that? Mm. There were no schools. Actually, I was just DIY. I just read a lot of magazines, no YouTube, so... Uh, didn't have that access. A lot of, just a lot of anything I could read about recording, I would just do. And it was just trial and error, experimentation. This record a band, this didn't work. Well, next time I tried doing this, that didn't really work. So next time I tried doing that. But yeah, I just figured, I had to figure it out. Did you have a mentor at that time? Actually, I didn't. <laughs> it seems crazy now to think that uh, 
It, you know, recording is not really that hard, actually. You just have to watch the levels, uh, watch the bleed, uh, make sure everybody, it's, the recording part, part of it is pr fairly easy. It's the people process, people part of it that's a little trickier. And in recording, they say it's 90% people skills, 10% recording ability, really, because you have to manage the people and um, make them feel comfortable. But I just figured it out as I went along. So this was in Palo Alto, you said? Yes, my first studio was in Palo Alto. What year was that? The first House of Faith was 1990 to May of 94. And then after that, uh, for about a year or so, I had a van, an old Volkswagen van, and I did a mobile recording thing where I would just travel to people's practice places, uh, their houses, just wherever they, were, wherever they were rehearsing, and I would record them there. That was a good adventure. And then um, out of that... I met a band that brought me into this Oakland place that I'm the Oakland studio I'm in now because they knew the guy Josh uh, Heller that was running this place and so they brought me in here and the guy and Josh who built the studio wanted to move to San Francisco so he turned the place over to Miles and I that's how Miles and I met was at this studio and that was way back in I think 95 or early 96. So I moved in here, Miles, and Miles had already been here, so we just both took the studio over, and this is now the second House of Faith. And you guys are, it's it's somewhat of a co-op situation between the two of you, and you each call the studio different names. Right, because we split the time. He, We share a lot of the same gear, but we don't share the same bands. We both have our own clients, our client list, and... Uh, we tend to record different things. Miles is more into the uh, the artful musician. I always say he gets all the really great players. I'm into more like the punk rock guys. <laughs> I get the fun players. But yeah, we have different clients. Uh, but sometimes he'll uh, come in and play on something or there's been a couple of times when he needed to play. So I came and recorded him because he needed to be in the, uh, you know, playing something. So that's kind of fun. Do you think that you have different approaches to how you record definitely miles is much he's a, miles is very very good he's he's a great recording guy i'm more of let's just get it down you guys are hot come on you're playing really well the levels might be crazy the sound might be a little wacky but let me just get it down and then uh, i'll deal with it later because you as a band you guys sound really good right now so i'm kind of like I like to get the band playing. They get in here, they're all pumped up. They want to get going. So I try to get things happening as fast as possible. Do you find that over time as studio partners working in the same facility, do you do you feel like his techniques bleed to you and yours bleed to him in terms of your philosophy about recording and how you record? I always try, sometimes I think, hmm, how would Miles do this? <laughs> but we've both been doing it for so long. I'll definitely, if I have questions, I'll definitely go ask Miles, especially about digital audio, which I'm still a, fair, a newcomer with. I've only been uh, using digital audio now since late 2014. So if I have any questions, he's the guy I'll always go to and ask. But we both have been doing this so long, we have our different styles. We have a good partnership. We don't step on each other's toes. Occasionally, we'll have the same band show up at the same time, and we'll have to deal with that. But... Uh, it's worked super well. I'm super lucky to have Miles as a partner. He's a great guy. Going back to that earlier Palo Alto studio, the the first incarnation of House of Faith, what lessons did you learn in the years there? What are whether they're uh, you know survival or business or uh, dealing with bands? You know that's the place essentially where I 
and correct me if I'm wrong, where I think you cut your teeth. Right. It's kind of like an, ex- not an experimental place, but it was kind of a big playground where I really learned how to deal with a lot of different personalities quickly, um, how to make people feel comfortable. That's really important. Um, it's good to not have people wait around while you spend 20 minutes getting the good, you know, the perfect snare sound. It's good just to get it going. You can always sort it out later. That's usually not a problem. I learned that it's always worth it. And sometimes it's hard, but it's always worth it to go that extra mile, you know, really worth it. People will always appreciate it. Sometimes you just want to go home. You're like, it's late. You're like, ah, but if you just, but going that extra, that extra little bit is something that people always appreciate. They're always thankful for. I learned that. I don't do it so much now, but I used to do a special package where I would record and mix uh, everything in one day. And the mixing, I was never really, mixing for me is where I'm never really super satisfied. I'm always trying to get it up to that next level. And so I'd always go a little, always go extra over when it came to mixing, mm-hmm. just, get it, just to get, because I wanted to get it right. So that would be a little extra thing I might, I would probably do. Because I want to feel good about it, you know. I want, when I hear it, I don't want to go, uh, I want to go, yeah, that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about learning how to work with different personalities and, and kind of get up to speed with those personalities in a recording session. So what are some of the ways that you do that? And like when you're, when you're dealing with these various personalities and they come in the door, do you go through a thought process of, okay, he's this kind of person, abrasive, passive, what, whatever it is? Yeah, I used to think that there's pretty much 10 personality types in the music world. There's always the guy that's the big warrior, you know, you can usually spot him. Lots of times that's a drummer. There's probably somebody, who, there's always the quiet person that doesn't say much, but that's often the uh, bass player. And that's a person that when they do say something, you really want to hear what they're saying because they've been thinking about it for a while. Singers are usually often exuberant. You know, they're excited. They want to get to doing the vocals. And also, and I don't want to come off sounding wrong, but there's a little bit of a male-female thing going too, where women tend to hear something a certain way and men tend to hear it another way. And often if I'm in the studio and there's women in the band and men in the band, the woman's opinion is lots of times super, super valid because they're listening to the music in a different place than the guys are. Um, And I'll always pay attention to what they have to say because it's usually more from a more fun aspect. And the guys can sometimes tend to be over serious, like "Mm, it's not cool enough. But a lot of times women will be like, that feels really good. That's a good, you know, that's a good part. That part's super fun. Let's do that part, you know? And I don't want to generalize, but there is a little bit of a thing there. That's a pers- that's a personality thing in the studio. Often when I'm mixing or I'm not sure about the tempo of a take, I'll look, kind of glance behind me a little bit and see if anybody's tapping their feet. Because uh, if the takes, if it's the right tempo, people will often tap their foot and not, re- not really think about it, you know? So that's a little little trait going on. Let's see. But there's always, I, I like to focus on the warrior because if I can make them feel relaxed, it's all about people making making people feel relaxed in the studio because once people are relaxed, they'll start to have fun. And if you're not having fun in the studio, then it's it can be a long day because <clears throat> studio time can be kind of like army time, I think, where you're sitting around for long periods of time, nothing's happening. Then all of a sudden you have to jump up and do your part. Right. Or all of a sudden you have to jump up and sing. So if everybody's kind of having fun, then that makes everything, everybody's kind of coalescing together. There's better energy. So good to get the personalities kind of straightened out. Um, I've never had a problem with people 
telling me how they would record, that doesn't usually come up. But if they did, it's always fun to hear how they might do something and think about that. But definitely there's always a warrior. There's always someone who's intense. What do you think is the best way to deal with the warrior? Make them feel comfortable. Let them know that you understand their concerns. If it's a drummer, he's, he wants to get a good drum sound. So sometimes he's, he might have had a bad experience where he didn't get a good drum sound. <clears throat> so it's good to make them just, just making people feel relaxed. Humor is always the best thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you think those those warriors suffer from a form of recording PTSD? Like you said, they've had a bad experience or they, they weren't listened to in the past. And, you know, of course, drummers and being a drummer, I'll oh, gladly, right. gladly cop to this that <laughs> Drummers are a nutty breed of human being. Mm -hmm. And you combine that warrior personality with the drummer personality, it's a toxic combination sometimes. Yeah, because then they'll freeze up. I'm thinking of somebody right now who he's a great drummer and I've seen him live and he's so good. But every time he comes in the studio, he worries. And then once he starts worrying, he doesn't let it go. Like he doesn't, I, sometimes I'll tell people, Play with your body, not your mind. You know, you just gotta, you gotta just, you gotta unhook your mind there. And so this person I'm thinking of, he'll come in and he'll start worrying and really have to get him to relax, not think about every drum hit, every part. But it can be done. You just have to focus on them for a little bit. Lots of times, drum, lots of times, drummers have had bad experiences with going to a studio. The guy starts taping up all his drums. He wants them. Starts putting tape on everything. He wants them super dead. And that usually ends up to be a kind of a strange drum sound sometimes. So I always like to tell them, just, I like drums to ring. Just set them up how you like them. If it's a problem, we'll deal with it. But just let them, just don't, don't think I'm going to start changing your sound. That's another thing that I think drummers that, drummers that worry, worry about. Do you, do you have that worry? No. Uh, I think because I have the two mentalities of 
recording engineer and drummer in my brain. Mm. So I'm, you know, I will, I will do whatever it takes drum samples, taping the drums, making the drums live. Mm -hmm. I'll, you know, edit them to death. I don't care. Whatever ultimately serves the song. Right. I just feel like it's a big tool and I've lost, maybe it's cause I've lost my, my drummer ego. Uh -huh. That's now buried. We could probably have a whole show just talking about drummers. Just the, yeah. <laughs> we could have a whole podcast series on drummers. Cause it's really, that's such a key element of the band. And I know so many drummers and it's such a hard if that's the hardest thing to be is I think a drummer and a singer are the two hardest singers because you're at the mercy of a cold or how what can affect your throat and drummers because you've got to be in a certain a certain zone so you can relax and not and just play and not try to second guess yourself and that's a that's a hard thing plus you have to move all your drums it's a big kit oh I've always thought that if I was going to play all over again, I would be a drummer, though, because to me, that's just the most fun. It looks like it's so fun to be a drummer. It is. And, you know, truthfully, you know, I say I play. I actually haven't played in a, in a few years. I've kind of temporarily put the drums away, and audio is really my love and focus at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. But. But back to you. Let's. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, <laughs> no, Matt. I think we should be interviewing you sometime. <laughs> that would be excellent. That's not how I expected it to be. <laughs> um, what did you learn about survival in the first incarnation, and what you learned in the in the first incarnation and this incarnation of House of Faith? What What did you learn, and what has changed between those two time periods? Well, the first incarnation was the first time I'd actually set up a studio as a business and had to pay rent and there was build, we had to build it out and that was, that was a whole issue. And, um, I didn't have to worry about getting, ba getting bands as much back then because, uh, being in Palo Alto, another lucky thing, I was right in the middle of the Bay area. So I was getting bands from as far as ways I was getting a lot of bands from Santa Cruz there was a whole metal scene way out in the North Bay that was coming in, all the San Francisco bands, some East Bay bands. I didn't have to worry about getting the getting the bands as much. So, And also my prices, I was doing definitely the punk rock specials. So my prices were low because I wanted to get experience recording. I was trying to record as many bands as I could just to get all that experience. And that worked. Survival, I didn't really, th I was too busy to think about survival. <laughs> It's funny because after a long night of recording, I would actually sometimes sit down and listen to more music because I had my music fresh in my head mm -hmm. and then I could put something on and I could listen and compare, you know, at the time and think about, well, it's close over there, but doesn't that, you know, the bottom end still not quite right. But survival, there's, I think more survival here now because the studio, the whole nature of a studio has totally changed where now you can do it in your practice place, which is totally great. I don't focus so much on the punk rock specials anymore. I don't really do that anymore. Now I'm much more into working with people on a longer on a longer term. I do a lot of songwriters now. To me, that's super fun because I can participate more. I sometimes play piano on people's sessions. Hmm. If I have come up with a part, I can just jump over to our piano and play a little part. But the survival now, it's a funny word because I've been doing this so long that I don't really think of survival. I just think of ongoing. Like, how can I keep it, keep the uh, momentum up? Well, maybe the... Uh the question to ask is, is how have you made the art of recording and your financial situation work out? We both know how expensive it is to live in the Bay Area. So 
have you do you have a, a particular strategy with money where I guess maybe it's just save and don't spend everything that comes in the door? Well, I've always been on the lower end of the price scale um, purposefully. That's tricky because I'm always constantly juggling, oh, how much should I charge? How much should I charge? You know, I have to raise my rates a little bit, but I don't want to like price myself out. I'm always really conscious of how many people I've, you know, can you afford me? Are you sure you can afford this? When this kind of times come to pay the man, I always feel kind of bad when people are paying. The money thing's always tricky because it's such a creative thing and you get to be a part of it, you know? It's really a cool art form because you get to be a part of the band. It's probably like movie making where you're all a little family together for a while. You get to know everybody. Like I, a lot of the people I record, I know them really well. I've met their parents. Uh, I just had a guy in here a couple of weeks ago. I recorded him when he was 18 and now he came in with his son who plays drums to do a new pro to do a project his his son 17 you know and he wanted to bring him in the studio and have an experience with me that he had uh to get off the subject um but but you really have a, a connection to the point where it sounds like you almost feel guilty about you know oh i have to charge you Sorry. i know it's like cuz i've always thought of it as family it's like a huge extended family yeah I've been doing this for 28 years about, and uh, I think I probably have recorded about four or 5,000 people in the Bay Area. So we're always going out, my, and my son is always like, Dad, are we going to see band guys? Because <laughs> I'm always <laughs> running into band guys at the hardware store. It's like, hey, Bart, what's up? You recorded me back in. <clears throat> so my son knows if we run into somebody, he's supposed to say, oh, yeah, hi, my name is Will, so the guy can say his name so I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is. You get to be my age. I'm like, God, what's your name again? Yeah. Um, but I've, yeah, it's, I do, the, the money thing is hard. I try to juggle with one hand and the, like this extended family on the other hand. And, uh, you know, you always feel funny about charging your, asking your brother for money or something. So with regards to gear and gear purchases or gear lust, are you a person that is able to temper that pretty well? Or, or are you constantly flipping through magazines or looking online? At oh yeah, gear? totally. <laughs> I totally love gear, but we have some incredible gear here, and I'm pretty good about my purchases. Right now, I'm trying to get things repaired. That's more my focus. Um, if you've, I don't know if you've run a studio, but if you've ever owned a studio, you know how quickly things just start piling up in that repair box. It's unbelievable how fast stuff will break, because it gets a lot of use, you know? Yeah. This is day in, day out use. And we have a lot of really nice stuff that's just in the repair box. So instead of buying new stuff, I've been trying to focus on fixing our old stuff up. The whole digital audio thing is a whole different type of gear lust than the analog gear lust, which is funny. Because I went through a big plug-in phase where I was just like, wow, listen, this thing is great. You know, where I was just buying, just buying plug-ins. But now I've decided not to buy anymore. And now I just go back and figure out everything else I can do with the ones that I bought. Because, they're, you know, if you just start messing around, you can... You might as well mess around with the stuff you have and check out, you know, take it to every place you can instead of just buying new ones, you know? Yeah. So I'm just focusing on that. I've actually been selling some stuff, which is kind of kind of hard to do, hard to part with sometimes. Uh, but I definitely see things that think that this would be fun to have. And then I think, well, wait a minute, we already have something that's like that. I should just use that thing and, you know, have fun with that. So I think I have fairly well-tempered gear lust. Mm, that's good. I kind of have more computer lust than gear lust at the moment. Oh, that's a never, never ending. It's battle. a never ending cycle. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned your son, as far as work-life balance and 
you know, family and working late hours, et cetera, et cetera. How have you managed that uh, over the course of time as you've had a family? Well, lucky, luckily for me, my wife and I met in the studio. She was a singer for a band. So she has a very good understanding of what studio life is actually like, that it's not like the band comes in and they set up and there's like the roses on the on the little uh, chair and they're doing like the perfect take, one take, perfect take, and it's done. And she knows that it, the studio is actually can be a very long grind. I've, tam- I've definitely changed my hours so I can be home more because that's the family thing. Since running a studio and being with bands is kind of a big family, like an extended family, mm-hmm. they've changed my hours so I can be home earlier to be with my family also because it's important. The family thing is important. But sometimes you have to stay late you know, you got to get that little extra, put that extra thing in because the singer's really hot right now. So I'm going to have to be an hour late because they're going to sing another, they really, I really want them to sing another song. It works out. We've worked it out. It's good to have someone, if you're going to do this, it's good to have a partner who knows what it's really like in the studio, that you're not just hanging out with all your buddies, having a good old time, you know. You're just down here drinking beer, yeah. watching cartoons. <laughs> right, right. Recording? What's that? Yeah, I have, I've definitely, I used to work 12, uh, noon to 12 midnight, and I don't do that anymore. And I've cut my days back to eight-hour days. They used to be 10-hour days. And before that, they were 12-hour days. So generally, cut, I've cut those back. I start a little earlier now and end a little earlier. I don't do those 16-hour things that I might have done when I was a lot younger, although those were fun. I definitely have some fun memories of coming home at like 6 a.m. in the morning from the studio. And it's, the sun's just coming up. But that's, ooh, that's hard to do. Uh, it's... You know, you have to be balanced. It's it's being a, a sitting in a studio all day is hard because you're just assaulted in a way mm-hmm. with music, and you're, a lot of times you're working on the same song, you know, all day over and over. So you definitely have to have that mentality. It's like anything; you need that balance. But I will say, for anybody just starting out, you really should just record everybody you can get a hold of, you know, for just to get amass that experience because there's in the recording industry, and if you want to be a recording guy. Schools are cool, but there's just nothing like experience. It's like people experience what you do when someone just doesn't want to do it. How can you talk someone through it? Talking someone through playing a difficult part, that happens all the time. Lots of times people will try to attempt a part that's just a little above their their skill set, but they really want to nail that part. So you really have to be patient, talk them through it, get them to, because when they do nail it, it's just going to be the best thing. They're going to be so happy. So the people skills is really... It's the hardest thing to develop, but the most important thing in the long run, I think. Do you feel that the things that you've learned, and this kind of goes two directions, the things that you've learned as far as your people skills in dealing with a uh, your your son, for example, and vice versa, do you think that, and I'm not trying to categorize musicians as children, but- <laughs> More like recording guys yeah. or kids that never grew up. <laughs> Pretty much, but- I mean, it seems that that could cut both ways. It's like how how you encourage a singer might be, you know, similar to how you encourage your your own child. But at the same time, the things you learn about your child could also apply to oh, interesting. how you deal in the studio. I know I'm kind of going a little deep there. You definitely have to be patient. That works with a child too. Be patient and listen to what they're trying to say. I know I'm not the best father in the world, but uh, you definitely have to have patience. People will often get frustrated in the studio. It's it's an easy place to get frustrated because they want to. They come in, they want to play the song the best they ever played it, like how they imagine it in their minds. That's difficult to achieve in a studio. 
I usually say, I often say, I want you guys to get give me a good solid 85%. Because <laughs> if you give me a, 85, I can get you another 10. And then, uh, and, you know, we'll be at 95% and we'll be almost to 100. And that's, that's going to be super solid. So when they think that, oh, he, he needs 85%, then they kind of, all of a sudden, you can just feel them notch down a little bit, like relax a little bit. Like, oh, great. We don't have to like focus and play the song the best we ever played it. So patience, um, just real understanding. Uh, singers have different needs than guitar players. Guitar players have different needs than drummers, bass players. Bass players always like to go through and check every single note of their part to make sure it's correct. I think you know, talking about people skills is kind of like the most boring part of record of a recording conversation because it's not about the gear or it's not about like the latest trick, but it's like the key to unlocking the whole thing is is knowing how to deal with people. And I'm not saying that I'm the guy that knows how to deal with people, but I just have had a lot of experience yeah. dealing with people. Have you had some missteps over the years? Oh, totally. Of- I've made people cry a couple of times and that's probably when I just finally just couldn't take it anymore. Told one guy after he spent six hours working on one guitar solo that I just can't record you anymore. Three years later, he came back and he swore that he wasn't going to spend six hours on a guitar solo. So I recorded him again. Um, I mean, even I have a breaking point. I like to think that people have a good time when they come here. They leave feeling good. They feel good about their music. They feel good about themselves. I don't know if we'll probably get to this, but um, I often track everything onto tape and then um, often dump it into the computer after. And when it's tracked to tape, people have to play a little better. They can't, they can't just wing their part a little bit and know that I'll fix it later. And I think people like to know that they have to go in and play their part, play it well. They can't just kind of play it and then think, I'll just punch in. Because it's not quite as easy to punch in. Drummers can't punch in, really. So the drummers have to... So it kind of raises the stakes a little bit to get them to play it well. And I think that people like to think that, oh, we're recording a tape. Oh, that's kind of hard. But wait, I played that part really well. You know, I really tried to play that part because I had to play it. Because I have to play the part well. And I think that's a good... They kind of they have a good time here. They've had a good time here. They become a little better as musicians, you know, because I've tried to help them nail their parts or sing a difficult vocal part. And that's that's an important thing too. What do you feel the state of recording is now in the Bay Area, in particular, based on your experience of these many many years? I think there's a lot of super good quality studios in the Bay Area. I think bands in the Bay Area, it's. The Bay Area is just like, it's such a concentration of music here. It's really, because there's three different zones, you know, you've got the East Bay, you've got the San Francisco side, and then you've got the whole South Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in the South Bay, so I I got a lot of my bands from the South Bay. I, so I think musicians, they pretty much know what's going on as far as recording, they're used to it. I think that there's a lot of really interesting studios that have been here for a long time. A lot of interesting recording guys I've always wanted to meet. In fact, I should ask you about that. Oh, I've, I'll introduce you. I know many. Of I'm them. sure you do. There's like a lot of guys. It's I'm you know it's I know there's like there's like um, audio shows you know like Nam and everything, but I've often, often thought it'd be cool if there was just a recording guy like get together where recording guys could just like hang out and not be bombarded by all these like salespeople trying to sell them something you know yeah where they can uh, just hang out and go you know that was a cool sound you got on that one part how did you do that um, well what about the bands as far as like your workload. And compare now compared to the past. It's definitely more of a, I wouldn't say struggle, but I'm lucky because I've I've been doing it for so long that everybody that I record knows somebody else that I've recorded pretty much. I don't really get that many cold calls. It's always like, you know, you recorded my friend's band or I'm in a new band. So I think starting out now would be hard because 
even though there's so many musicians, it would be hard, hard to get a foot in because there's so many people that record. Funnily enough, since I got the computer, I've been way more busy. You now, know? No, yeah, explain that. What do you think? That- well, I thought that for a long time, I was having a rough time back in the early 2000s because the bands I was focusing on, all the punk rock bands and the bands that couldn't really afford to record, they all could start recording themselves. So I started losing that whole clientele. Um, I would still get some of them, but they all started doing it themselves. When I got the computer, I got a lot busier because people started sending me stuff to mix, which I absolutely love doing. I love when people send me stuff to mix. It's so fun. So I started doing more of that kind of work. The projects that I like now, bands I want to spend a little more time working on parts and stuff, the computer is perfect for that. That tends to take longer. So that's it's not something you can really do on analog tape. I've kind of gotten out of the let's record it all in one day kind of thing with bands and started uh, focusing more on lo- more long-term projects. Plus, we all know anything that has to do with the computer just takes longer in general. It just does. <laughs> Tape's fast because you can only do so much. We're out of tracks, boys. Let's mix, you know, or girls. But um, on the computer, there's just like so many, there's so much, there's so many more things you can explore. You can go to, so, you, there's so many more avenues you can go down. Like, yeah. road, like roads, some of them are like dead ends, of course. But uh, I was kind of amazed at how much, how more, how, how much more creative I was when I got the computer. Do you ever see a time where you'll skip the analog tape process and just go straight to tracking to the computer? I like the analog workflow when I track, but it, often the band will want to do four or five takes of a song and will run out of tape, you know, and that just sucks. Then I think, dang, we should have been on the computer. But actually, I kind of do run the computer at the same time, just as a backup. But I like the sound of the drums on tape, and that translates pretty well. It transfers pretty well to the computer. So I can't really see stopping while well, I have the tape machine. I would still start, try to, as much as possible, try to start everything on tape. Have you, in terms of keeping your operation afloat, have you had to diversify at all over the years, you know, books on tape or any other kind of audio-based mm, thing? I tried that actually a little while, or I tried doing, um, uh, I tried looking into the books on tape thing. It seemed like, a, it seemed like there was a market out there. I should say audiobooks. It's kind of a books on yeah, tape is right. a little bit of an antiquated <laughs> yeah, term. Mean, yeah, audiobooks or uh, because I thought there was probably a lot of authors out there that wanted to uh, do their do their books, but then I looked into it and it was more about they would get professional voiceover people to do the books audiobooks. It's not like the it's not like the author was reading it. Mm-hmm. So they usually the author wants someone who has a good voice, you know, a nice voice to read their book. Where when I first got the computer, I was looking into all the different ways I could make the computer work. And then I started getting really busy again. And uh, so I haven't really gone down those avenues. I did a little bit of, not audiobooks, but um, I had someone come in. I've had a couple of people come in and do uh, um, kind of like blog kind of things, you know. But I'm a music guy and I love music. So, you know, what's funny is since I got the computer too, I found out that I learned so much more about audio. Because uh, since you can pretty much demo any plugin for a while, I started listening to all the different EQs you can do, you know, and stuff. And uh, before, I would always, I was always kind of a gut guy, instinct guy, like I'll turn this, I'll turn that. And then I wouldn't really realize while I was unhappy when I listened to it later, because I was always in the moment turning this EQ, turning this EQ. And then I, when I got the computer, I was able to actually listen to EQs really carefully and see what they did and the different types and. You know, and really delve more into the. I never really had time to delve into the audio portion because when I started recording way back, I just became so busy so quick. So it was really a good way to actually learn about audio too. Do you feel like the computer has given you a whole new uh, outlook on the world of audio? It has result? totally. I know, and for it's funny for me to say because everybody always thinks I'm Mr. Analog, 
And then I read in these interview, these recording interviews, the same thing with other recording guys. Yeah, for years I was Mister Analog. I would never, I was never going to go to the computer, and now I love the computer. It happens. I think it happens to everybody. I think yeah. uh, analog guys are analog guys. Being able to see a waveform, yeah, that's to me that's just magical. That's unbelievable. It's like so cool. And even when you grow up with it, you're kind of used to it. But I've gone from like just hearing the waveform, and now I can look at it and just really like think. Oh yeah, that part right there. You know, there's a problem, but what's the problem? You know, I have to really like listen to it. Oh, that's the problem. I gotta, th- I gotta thank you. This has been great to chat with you and and meet you too. I've I've long want- wanted to meet you, so uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Sure, Matt. Thank you. And uh, you recording guys, people skills. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, well, thanks, man. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Bart Thurber. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Also want to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdell and Chuck Smith for their efforts for music and for voice. And I want to thank you. I appreciate the fact that you come back week after week. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.